everyone, good morning. It's another beautiful day here in the Peter Rollins Military Industrial Complex in Los Angeles. And I just wanted to uh, reflect a little bit on a question that I occasionally get asked. And it is the question, what is parotheology? Because this term parotheology is something that I've started to use as a way of uh, bringing together the constellation of thinking that I'm doing to bring together, to tie together the theory and the technology that I have been exploring over the last 25 years. Um, now, it's hard to sum up because in a way, it's trying to describe this long and winding journey that I've been on. But as I go forward with it uh, and I look back over what I've done, I can begin to get more and more clarity about the journey that I'm taking. I always knew from very early on, like when I was about 17 or 18, that I wanted to explore a certain uh, uh, series of questions and I wanted to explore a certain way of life. But I had no idea where that journey would take me. I had a, just a kind of dim awareness that it might lead to something, but it's really taken uh, you know, 25 years to get to the point where I can start to simplify what I've been doing or reflect on that journey. And uh, if I live for another 25 years, um, I will uh, hopefully have even more clarity and more depth about what I'm doing. So all I'm going to do today is offer a very small reflection on kind of what parotheology is attempting to do. I, I do uh, monthly lectures actually called Paro Seminars that are designed explicitly to go into more depth. And I think there's like 20 or 30 of those now on my Patreon, so you can check those out if you want. Uh, and also then I've got various books where I've explored these ideas as well. So what I'm going to do today is just a brief overview. Uh, in, in many ways, it's a dangerous thing to do because I'm going to kind of talk about the broad trajectory of my work uh, and maybe maybe try to look at one area, one central area that it's attempting to explore. And uh, But I'm not going to be able to talk about why that's a good thing. I'm not going to be able to show you the working out, the arguments that have led me to this. So you're going to have to you know, go off and do your own research if, if this piques your interest. But what I'll do then, I'm, I'm going to do three things. First of all, I'm just going to tell you a bit of the story of, of where that term came from just a bit of biographical background. Uh, then I'm going to look at the notion of ultimate concern uh, in the work of Paul Tillich. And then I'm going to use that concept to try to reflect on one of the central thrusts of parotheology. So in terms of how the term came about, uh, I, as many of you know, uh, used to run a community or collective in Northern Ireland in Belfast called ICON. ICON mostly did these monthly events called Transformance Art, which were a kind of immersive, destabilizing experience that used music and ritual and uh, poetry and prose uh, in order to kind of existentially explore uh, what it means to live and to explore faith and doubt and, and uh, all, those, all those good things. Anyway. Uh, what we would do every week is a group of us would meet together, be sometimes in the pub, it would be sometimes in someone's house. Uh, it actually started off, we would meet in my old house that was called Tate's Modern. 
Um, it was called Tate's Modern because it was on a street called Tate's Avenue. And it was a squat, basically became squat, uh, where five of us lived together. I lived there for seven years. And um, it was like a modern art hellscape. Uh, doors that didn't open, uh, holes in the ceiling, uh, uh, holes in the walls, uh, cold water and, uh, you know, damp and leaks. And it was kind of like the house and fight club, if you've ever seen that. And it was a wonderful place to live. I loved it. But uh, we would meet every week and we would discuss what type of transformance art event we were going to do. And we went at that in a number of different ways. I mean, sometimes somebody would come with a, an idea of going like, oh, what would it look like if we just had hundreds of broken wine glasses in the pub and we poured red wine into the broken wine glasses? And then we would use that in order to structure an event. Or somebody would come in and go, what would it look like if we... Uh, took everything down. So we had the whole thing set up and then half of the gathering was stripping everything away until all we had was an empty room. And then the second half of the event was just offering silence uh, and then see what, what would happen. And you know, we, we played around with these notions. And I remember one week I had read a quote by the Spanish anarchist Bonaventura Doretti, who said that the only church that illuminates is a burning one. And I like this phrase because I, I like the undecidability in it. I mean, of course, what it means is basically the church is an anti-enlightenment institution that needs to be destroyed. But, of course, there's also this religious meaning of fire. Like, you've got the burning bush that, that burns without being consumed. You have tongues of fire that descend on people in the Book of Acts. Uh, you have the Holy Spirit as a symbol of fire. And so I like this notion of, you know, the destruction of the church and also maybe that destruction being productive. And so I came to the meeting and I said, you know, I wonder if we could do something on this. And we ended up creating a gathering that we did at a festival in England. And Chris Fry, who's a psychotherapeutic psychoanalyst, um, I think he's actually just finishing his training to become a full psychoanalyst. Uh, he said, oh, I think we could call this parotheology. And so that gathering was called Parotheology. And then a few years later, when I was trying to discuss my work, uh, that phrase came back to mind, and I thought, that's as good as any. Uh, there's something about that gathering we did um, and something about ICON as a whole that really captured the spirit and the essence of what I'm trying to do. And so that term has stuck. Now then, what I want to do next is look at this notion of ultimate concern. Uh, again, uh, just to let you know that I'm going to do a very uh, broad sweep on, that, on this term, but I have a whole study on my website that's uh, four or five hours long um, on a book by Paul Tillich. Uh, the course is called Find and You Will Seek. So if you're interested in really going deeper into this notion of ultimate concern, I'd recommend you check that out. But basically, uh, for Tillich, ultimate concern is kind of what it says on the tin. It's what concerns us ultimately. Uh, human beings are a strange creature for whom meaning is important, right? You don't see dogs sit around wondering what is the meaning of life for the dog? What should they be doing in order to find depth and meaning in life, right? The other animals that we see seem very content living without the question of their own being being a question to themselves. Uh, and that's a very Heideggerian thing, which is that human beings 
are creatures for whom our being, our reality is a question for us. You know, who are we? What are we? What should we do, be doing with our lives? Is there any meaning to life? Um, how can I find a depth of life? These types of questions are important to us, even if we uh, ignore them on a day-to-day -day basis. They make their presence felt at various times. And this is not insignificant. I mean, it's so obvious that we don't think about it. But that's what good philosophers do, just like good scientists do, is they, they see something that is so common that everybody sees it, but nobody questions what it really means. Like, for example, gravity. You know, everybody sees that things fall to the ground. But it takes a brilliant mind to actually see how strange that is and to try to work out what it is. So we are creatures for whom our own existence is a question to us. Why we're here, what it's about, where we're going, etc., etc. And Tillich then, and this is why Tillich, by the way, called himself a theologian, more so than a philosopher, even though he was a very good philosopher, is because he was interested in ultimate concern. He was interested in illuminating what this ultimate concern is uh, and protecting us from scientism on one side and superstition on the other. And I'll come back to what that means in a second. But he wants to illuminate this reality that meaning is important to us. And he wants to help orient us to that meaning to find, uh, I suppose, a meaning in that pursuit of meaning. And he sees that as a theological project. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. Um, this is something um, that is uh, broader than that question, more universal than that question. Now, what ultimate concern isn't is not what we really like. So somebody might be really into sports, or somebody else is really into a certain religion, somebody else really loves cars. Uh, somebody might go, well, is that ultimate concern the thing that really animates the individual, whatever it is, that whatever hobby they have or person in their life, that's their ultimate concern. But uh, Tillich would want to say, no, that's not your ultimate concern. That is how ultimate concern is manifest in your life. So ultimate concern, um, it manifests itself in different ways in everybody's life. But the concrete things that you really love are not ultimate concern. So let's take a, an example. Uh, in this book, My Search for Absolutes, he, has, uh, he uses four different examples of how ultimate concern arises. Uh, so we'll take philosophy uh, as one of those elements. He also looks at ethics. He looks at religion. And he looks at, uh, he, he mentions aesthetics as well. I think it's, it's the three are the main ones, I think, which is philosophy, ethics, and religion. Um, yes, those are, those are the three he looks at in the book. But there's others um, that, as I say, aesthetics is another one. But in philosophy, say you're arguing for something, and you're arguing passionately that Star Wars is better than Star Trek, right? So that's, you're arguing, you, care, you obviously care so much about it, maybe just that night because you've had a few drinks, but you're arguing passionately about this subject. And Tillich would say that, your ultimate concern is not Star Wars. Your ultimate concern is kind of glimpsed at in the fact that in order to make an argument, you have to believe in logic and reason. Um, you have to believe in a certain kind of underlying structure. That to even argue something 
requires uh, a whole set of assumptions that are not um, that are not uh, transparent to us. Just like to speak, you need to have a whole set of grammatical rules going on, which you don't pay any attention to, but they're there. If they weren't there, we wouldn't be able to speak. So we're constantly, when we're speaking, we're, we're uh, indirectly uh, testifying to a grammatical structure. And so in the same way, when you argue, you're indirectly testifying to an underlying logic. And even if we argue what logic is, what reason is, the very ability to argue about what reason and logic is means that we are already presupposing logic and reason uh, at some deep level. Uh, so that is kind of what Tillich is talking about, ultimate concern. This is what grounds us. Uh, in ethics, it's similar. Uh, in ethics, we all feel a certain pull towards action that is non-utilitarian. Uh, in other words, there's ethics that's connected to uh, punishment and reward. You want to do the right thing because if you don't, your mom's going to you know, slap you around the head. Or uh, you don't, your God is going to put you into hell. Or if you don't do it, you're going to get arrested by the state and put in prison. Right? But all of us have a sense in which, no, that can't be the exhaustive nature of ethics, that we decide what we do in relation to external authority, rewards, and punishment. All of us, regardless of whether we ever act in this way, have a sense in which there are some actions that we shouldn't do, no matter how much money we're offered, right? Or that we should do, no matter how painful it is. Now, as I say, we will likely not do that. Um, but we still have a sense that there are actions that are beyond utilitarian calculation, beyond economics. And Tillich again would say that that sense is ultimate concern. You will do various ethical actions in your life, but every ethical action indirectly testifies to this grounding, this sense of an absolute action that... Um, that we should give ourselves over to, even if it costs us our life. Now, we never see this ultimate concern because every time we try to express it, we don't express it, we express something less than it. Uh, it's always indirectly expressed uh, in our concrete actions, but never directly illuminated. So for example, if you're an artist, and you're trying to paint something that is truly reflective of beauty. You have this notion of beauty, and then you put it onto a canvas. But the can what you put on the canvas will never fully exhaust this notion of beauty. Uh, beauty is this amorphous uh, inspiration, and it's actually your constant failure to get it that will inspire you to draw again and again and again. And many painters paint the exact same scenes again and again and again because there is something that is uh, unable to be exhausted in one painting or 10 paintings or a 1,000 paintings. And so beauty is indirectly glimpsed in the painting, but it is only direct, it is never directly seen. It is only testified to in the constant failure to get it. Or thinking about the legal system. If you have a good 
and just legal system. The legal system is always being rewritten and reevaluated in light of new situations. There is a, a resting on the past and, you know, past precedent, but always it's open to being transformed and rewritten because the law that we have, and this is a Derridean point, the law that we have is never justice. It never exhausts what justice is. It always falls short in some sort of way. Justice is only indirectly seen in, uh, in some legal judgments. It is never directly perceived. It's what animates the entire process. Just like logic animates our philosophical discussions, just like beauty animates our artistic creations, and just like this notion of an absolute act uh, animates our ethical decisions in life. Now, Tillich wants to avoid two dangers when it comes to ultimate concern. Uh, one is the danger, you could say the danger of religion, uh, and that is the danger of superstition or the danger of uh, idolatry. And what that means is it means that you raise something that is not ultimate to the level of the ultimate. So you take something that is reflective of the ultimate, that uh, is iconic, an iconic representation of the ultimate for you, whether it's a person, whether it's a cause, whatever it is, you take that thing which is contingent, which indirectly testifies to the ultimate, and then you raise it to that level. So for example, you might be a patriot, and there's two ways to be a patriot. One is to say, I love my country so much that I will live and die for it. Uh, well, actually, that's what both, both patriots that I'm going to describe will say that. I will live and die for my country. I love my country. It's given me so much, and I want to give anything back to it. But one person might say, my country, right or wrong, good or bad, I will die for my country. And that, for Tillich, is idolatry. That is taking this contingent state or government and raising it to the level of the ultimate. Whereas another patriot might say, I believe my country stands for freedom and democracy and justice. And so if my government or uh, you know, the, the judicial system or whatever uh, falls short of that goal, betrays that goal, stops being animated by those um, ideals, then I will fight against that state uh, for the love of my country. Now that for Tillich is a non-idolatrous form of expressing ultimate concern because the ultimate concern is being reflected in your love of country, but what you love in your country are a set of values that you can't directly grasp, but that indirectly animate the best of your country uh, at its best. On the other side, uh, Tillich also wants to protect against a type of crude materialism or scientism. And that is where this notion of ultimate concern is completely obliterated. That we treat the world as just um, <clears throat> a plane of uh, superficiality. That there is no depth dimension to life. There is no ground of being. There is just... Uh, a mundane set of material cause and effects that are going on constantly, um, that will be going on until potentially the end of the universe itself. And Tillich wants to avoid that 
because he says that, that, well, he thinks that that's an incoherent position as well, because you cannot deny the ground of being without stepping on it, without indirectly uh, testifying to it. So just as an example, uh, somebody might go, I, I think everything's relative. Right? I, I'm a total skeptic, everything's relative, there is no truth. But the very uh, ability to make that argument relies on you presupposing truth, a certain set of logical propositions, a certain notion of rationality and ability to communicate ideas, uh, and of, of one idea actually being better than another idea. So the very denial in your lips uh, is actually betrayed by the ground that allows you to make that argument. So Tillich sees these as two dangers, and theology is a discipline, uh, a theory and a technology that is designed to avoid these two. One is the religious notion of idolatry, where we raise some sort of contingent thing to the absolute, and the other is a crude materialism, scientism, that uh, treats everything as, as, as without ground. And what Tillich wants to do is he wants to say that the theological uh, vocation is to help orientate people towards this ultimate concern, help uh, people remain faithful to it and find meaning in that uh, without either running away from it or, um, as I say, uh, taking some concrete individual or some concrete cause and thinking that that is the uh, ultimate meaning of their life. Now, I actually feel that I need to clarify something. Um, at the very beginning of this section, I basically said that ultimate concern is our concern for the ultimate, for that which grounds our logical arguments, grounds our ethics, uh, that which grounds our experience of the sacred, etc., etc. But uh, that's not completely accurate. And, uh, you know, one of the things I do in these uh, reflections is I'm, I'm just kind of talking more generally about things. And so as I've talked, I go, OK, I need to just clarify something. Perhaps a better way to put what I've been talking about is, is to say this. Ultimate concern at its most healthy, at its best, uh, is our concern for this ultimate, for this unreachable ground that is only ever indirectly experienced in reality. So that's what ultimate concern in its healthiest way should be. And how that looks basically is, say in your personal relationships, it's where you, uh, you love the other person, you think they're incredible, they're amazing and they're brilliant, but you also realize that there is so much of them that you do not know, that they are a mystery to themselves as well as a mystery to you. And that part of having a relationship with somebody is acknowledging and interacting with that dimension of the other that is other which means the dimension of the other that you cannot grasp and domesticate and understand. Or in the political realm, it's about saying that my understanding of justice or my understanding of democracy or freedom is not the understanding of justice, democracy or freedom. That there's always something in my understanding of that term that misses it because there's something about 
the, uh, these ideas, these freedom, democracy, and justice, that is ungraspable, that is a promise that continues to inspire us, but that we never directly grasp. So everything we have is a type of pale comparison to, uh, to this reality that we ultimately can't grasp. So that's what healthy ultimate concern is. We as human beings feel a type of vocation or a type of call to a depth of life, um, the beauty of existence. We, we feel that there is a, uh, a call to ethics or to rationality or to political action. And we remain humble as to how we live that out, realizing that how we actually uh, concretely live our lives and make ethical decisions and make philosophical arguments will always be open to revision and critique and development. Now then, there are two, let's call them unhealthy forms of ultimate concern. The first unhealthy form of ultimate concern, let's, we can call it demonic ultimate concern, and the other we can call disavowed ultimate concern. Demonic ultimate concern, which also can go under the name of idolatry and superstition, which I've already mentioned, is, a, is when we raise something that is not the ground, not the ultimate, to the level of the ultimate. So we, we confuse a contingent existing thing for that which is the absolute. We raise our country or an individual or a cause to the level of, the, of deity, basically. So that we can call demonic ultimate concern. And then disavowed ultimate concern is where we pretend that this ultimate concern doesn't exist. We deny it with our lips. But this is a type of foolishness. Just like in the Psalms, there's a Psalm that says, the one who says there is no God is a fool. Now, you can kind of, in, in philosophical terms, you can say the one who denies that the ground or the absolute exists is in contradiction with themselves, right? That's a kind of a philosophical way to describe that, that verse. In other words, if you say you're a relativist, the very claim to relativism undermines itself. So you are uh, in a performative contradiction. In other words, what you're saying contradicts what you are and what you're resting upon. And so uh, ultimate concern has its demonic manifestation and it has its disavowed manifestation and it has its healthy manifestation. And for, for Tillich, uh, a church at its healthiest is a place where this healthy form of ultimate concern is illuminated and encouraged, and we try to remain faithful to it. Now, this brings me to parotheology. It is attempting to avoid us thinking that there is something that we can grasp that will make us whole and complete. This is something I've talked about a lot. So you can see that I have talked a lot about the uh, side of idolatry in my work, especially my early works. 
about how we can get so obsessed with some religious perspective or some political perspective or some individual or some amount of money or level of fame or whatever it is that will make us whole and complete. In other words, raising something contingent to the level of the ultimate, um, giving ultimate concern to something that is not ultimate. Uh, but then on the other side, uh, wanting to also critique a type of... Um, kind of relativism and a type of uh, scientism or a type of crude materialism that uh, avoids confronting this ground. And there are various ways in which you can think about what this ground is. And um, I don't want to actually get into that here. I've talked about it elsewhere. But it, it doesn't commit you to any supernatural belief. Uh, it is simply the belief that there is uh, a non-totalizable dimension to reality itself and that that non-totalizable dimension is the cause of basically most of our human suffering but also can be the cause of the greatest human achievements and the greatest human joy. And you see reflections on this notion of a non-totalizable dimension to reality in the mystics, but also in psychoanalysis, also in existentialism, also in mathematics. You see it in physics, you see it in art, you see it in, the, in ethics, you see it in philosophy. So there's a variety of places that you will find reflections on this notion uh, from the sacred to the secular. And that's really what parotheology is t attempting to do. It's attempting to help people experience a joy in that struggle of life, uh, in the impossibility of actually uh, directly grasping the absolute, but rather in your activity, in the struggles of love, indirectly manifesting the absolute. If you want to put it in an absolute nutshell, a tweetable line, it's basically that God is not an object that you love. God is the name of the depth dimension that we experience in the act of love itself. Or, to put it in a more philosophical way, the absolute is not something that we love. The absolute is a reality that we indirectly encounter in the act of love itself. So if you want to find out more about you know, paratheology and these ideas, either check out the paro seminars or check out the course Find and You Will Seek. Um, or there's plenty of stuff on this uh, talks archive as well that will, um, that will help out. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye-bye.